Amen. Let's pray, Will, shall we? Father, you are the only one who can. There is nothing greater than you, as we just proclaimed in song. God, I pray that that would permeate our hearts as we proclaim your word. God, what a beautiful testament to what you do in our lives. You turn graves into gardens. God, your word does that like a mighty sword. Even the picture that we have of you, Jesus, at the end of time in Revelation, a sword comes from your mouth. You cut bone from marrow. Your word is living and active. God, so I pray with this heavy text that we are in this morning that you would do just that, that you would cut bone from marrow, that you would make our vision more clear about who you are and who we are as your holy saints. God, speak truth to us this morning that we would live for you in greater measure walking out of these doors than we ever have before. Lord, we love you and we ask for your presence. We ask for your wisdom, your clarity. God, I ask for Clarity on my end, Lord, that I would speak what you have given from your word, uh, that it may be understood and applied. Be with us, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, guys, we are in Jude 5 through 11 this morning. And it is, if you've read ahead or we've read the whole book each week, and we will do again, uh, this section is pretty heavy and very, very dense. Uh, so I don't have a, a witty opener uh, because I want to get through a lot of stuff for us today and try to make uh, a lot of very confusing and very mysterious type things in this passage clear and then how we can apply those uh, modernly to where we are uh, in life today. So, so that, is, that is really my aim, and we're going to jump in, is not only to help you understand this passage and how it applies to your life uh, now, but also try to help us spot some of those things uh, that are not biblical, as this text talks about apostates and their teachings, uh, and how to reshape your view on those type of things uh, and even name some of those things explicitly. So uh, they say you can do whatever you want on your last day, and I'm getting close to that, so we're going to go for it today. Uh, so let's read the passage as Tim has made uh, kind of a tradition, I guess, through this book. Let's read the whole thing. Keep in mind explicitly verses 5 through 11, and uh, we, will, we will jump right in. Okay, Jude, verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who are the called, loved by God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Dear friends, although I was eager to write you about the salvation we share, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. 
For some people who were designated for this judgment long ago have come in by stealth. They are ungodly, turning the grace of our God into sensuality and denying Jesus Christ, our only Master and Lord. Now I want to remind you, although you came to know all these things, once and for all, that Jesus saved the people out of Egypt and later destroyed those who did not believe, and the angels who do not keep their own position but abandon their proper dwelling, he has kept an eternal change in dark, deep darkness for the judgment on the great day. Likewise, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns committed sexual immorality and perversions and serve as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. In the same way, these people, relying on their dreams, defile their flesh, reject authority, and slander glorious ones. Yet, when Michael, the archangel, was disputing with the devil in an argument about Moses' body, he did not dare utter a slanderous condemnation against him, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme anything they do not understand. And what they do understand, by instinct, like irrational animals, by these things they are destroyed. Woe to them! For they have gone the way of Cain, have plunged into Balaam's air for profit, and have perished in Korah's rebellion. These people are dangerous reefs at your love feasts, as they eat with you without reverence. They are shepherds who only look after themselves. They are waterless clouds carried along by winds, trees in late autumn, fruitless, twice dead, and uprooted. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shameful deeds, wandering stars from whom the blackness of darkness is reserved forever. It was about these that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, Look, the Lord comes with tens of thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly concerning all the ungodly acts that they have done in an ungodly way and concerning all the harsh things ungodly sinners have said against him. These people are discontented grumblers, living according to their desires. Their mouths utter arrogant words, flattering people with their own advantage. But you, dear friends, remember what was predicted by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They told you, in the end time there will be scoffers, living according to their own ungodly desires. These people create divisions and are worldly, not having the Spirit. But you, dear friends, as you build yourselves up in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keeping yourselves in the love of God, waiting expectantly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life, have mercy on those who waver. Save others by snatching them from the fire. Have mercy on others, but without fear, hating even, when, uh, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Amen. So we're going to tackle this text. And if you heard there in verses 5 through 11, this is a fairly dense and very heavy text. So uh, that's kind of how this sermon is going to go. I don't have very many jokes. Uh, But we're going to tackle this text by looking at four major threads that can be seen in it. So, uh, So that you know where we're going. These threads are the following, each with kind of three qualifying descriptors, okay? The first is past revolters, present apostates, primal corruption, and a perfect Savior. So let's begin with the past revolters. 
So what is neat is that right off the bat here in verse 5, Jude connects the Old Testament to the New. He blatantly acknowledges that Jesus is Yahweh of the Old Testament. He's Yahweh in the flesh, that He is here, that He is actually the one who brought the Israelites up out of Egypt. And we'll come back to that later. But it, is all, it also says that Jesus destroyed those who didn't believe. So Jude is doing what is the easiest way to communicate judgment and warning to his readers. He does it by example. But through these examples that he's going to list, he not only wants to give the judgment and the warning, but to exhort his readers to a better way, something that they can actually contend for. So Jude highlights the Israelite story, which he assumes everybody knows, and I will assume that most of you also know, so that he could show that they did not have any faith. They were not fit for God's kingdom. We see this reference back in Numbers chapter 14, really verses 11 through 45 is where you can go back and read that, that story. And if you recall, Moses sent out spies into the promised land. Right? They were to gather information. They were to come back, share that information about how they were to enter into the promised land and what God had promised to them. But instead, they came back and, and said that there was no way they were going to go into that land. And they refused to listen to God's command to inherit that land. And because of that, an entire generation of Israelites were subject to destruction because of their lack of faith. So what is Jude showing here in his first example? He's showing that the Israelites had no faith. And where there was no faith in God, there is righteous judgment. But then Jude moves on in verse 6, and he says, The angels who, the angels who did not keep their own position, but abandoned their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains and deep darkness for the judgment on the great day. So this can be a really confusing, this is kind of where this text gets really confusing, so I'm going to try to make it simple. It's in reference to Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. I'm going to read it for you, and then try to play, play out some context. Okay, it says this, When mankind began to multiply on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful, and they took any they chose as wives for themselves. Several quick things I want to tell you about this text. First, is that there are three different views as to who these sons of God are. Okay, the first one is that it is thought that they are sons of princes of the land. Royal men who married women of a lower social class, taking many of them as wives and, of course, having children. Second, the second view, is that uh, it is thought that they were Sethites, godly men, who ended up taking ungodly women of Canaan to be their wives and were subsequently led astray. Instead of taking the righteous path of Seth, they took the sinful path of Cain. The third view, and the one that I will strongly contend for and exhort from and exposit this text from, is the one that the sons of God were fallen angels. These fallen angels were opposed to God's glory, to God's will, to God's sovereign reign over all things, and who revolted from His created order. This view is uh, the most dominant from many of the commentaries that I read regarding this text, and also the most dominant from all of the past resources that I spent 
uh, reading a couple years ago when I was really nerding out on this, uh, this area and, and throughout Second Temple Judaism. Not only that, that but uh, it's by far the most dominant view by old uh, ancient commentaries. So think of commentaries from the B.C. era uh, with Judaism in mind. But this story, this exact story, is dealt with at length in the book of First Enoch. And that's, a, that's a, a text that Jude will later quote from directly, uh, and that Tim will spend more time talking about next week. But with this, this type of mindset, uh, this understanding in mind, it's easy to see why God places such adamant judgment on these fallen angels. They are divine beings who in revolting they are in revolting opposition to God and His created order. And as the text says, they did not keep their own position, but abandoned their proper dwelling. So God judges these angels, and He judges them on their sexual perversion with women that is staunchly in sight here, and also of their denial of God's created order. Okay, and the last of these past revolters is Sodom and Gomorrah. Most of you, I assume, do know of this, the text, the story about Sodom and Gomorrah found in Genesis chapter 19. You see here that in the text, Jude says, Likewise, likewise, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns committed sexual immorality and perversions. He uses likewise because the sins are similar to those that he just mentioned of these fallen angels, the previously mentioned angels. And these towns... These inhabitants of these towns committed sexual sin and revolt against God's created order, denying His Lordship. So there's, if you go back and read the story in Genesis 19, rampant, disgusting sexual sin happening in Sodom and Gomorrah. Not only did its inhabitants live in pure sexual debauchery, but they tried to truncate the order of God. They tried to sexually molest his messengers and were thus completely eliminated and destroyed. Genesis 19.25 tells us that God demolished these cities, the entire plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and whatever grew on the ground. Nothing was left. So what is clear here is that these perverse citizens revolted against the lordship and rule of God and committed heinous sexual sin. So these are our three past revolters that Jude is laying out as examples. Not only are the examples of revolt against God and denial of His created order and plan, but also of the judgment that is due for those that try to overturn and go against God's will, God's glory, God's kingdom. And it is from these three examples that we see in verses 5, 6, and 7 that Jude is going to highlight what these present apostates are like. And in an ominous fashion, their sin is very similar to the examples that Jude just gave. So Jude says that these present apostates who rely on their dreams, which, is, which means in the historical context that these apostates were the ones that were propping up their own divination, their own revelations against God's established Revelation. Remember verse 3. The entirety of the faithful gospel has been delivered once for all. Nothing else is needed. 
to be brought forth in divinity, in divine uh, omens or revelation. God has provided that already. But these dreamers, they believe that they have some new authoritative revelation to give to people. I think this sounds familiar, and we'll come back to it. But listen, however, to Jude's language about, language about these people. They defile the flesh first. In the context that Jude is painting and in the usage of the Greek that he employs, it is obvious that this defilement of uh, sexual sin, at really a pagan ritual that he was talking about, uh, is what is in light here. Not only is it sexual, but it is a revolt, a transgression against God's divinely established order. So we already start to see the similarities of these present apostates versus the past revolters. Also, second, they reject authority. This is a rejection of Jesus' lordship. Look back at verse 4. Jude plainly says that those that have come in by stealth are ungodly, exploit grace, and deny Jesus Christ. This is a betrayal, a scorning, a deceptive move against God. It is a denial of the Lord and His authority. And present apostates will always deny the Lordship of Jesus and reject God's authority, trying to establish their own. And last, they slander glorious ones. It's fairly certain here that Jude has in mind that these uh, slandered are angels. It's debated a little bit, however, whether or not these were were good, righteous angels or... uh, fallen angels or demons. In one sense, it could be argued that the glorious ones, uh, in the Greek Septuagint, it is clear that these angels were not merely uh, humans, but were demons. The corresponding story about Michael the archangel that we will get into in just a second could show that, that not even Michael would blaspheme, the archangel Michael would blaspheme the devil when in confrontation with him. That would be left to the Lord. Or, in another sense, It could be that these heretics publicly dishonor God's supernatural representatives, these good, righteous angels. In both Jewish and Christian theology, uh, angels are regarded as mediators of God's divine law. So these apostate teachers reject the angels and God's law, and they allow no voice of authority other than their own. I think, honestly, to not dive into it, it really doesn't matter. Uh, For the reason that these apostates have no knowing regard for any things of glory. They think they do, but they don't. And here's why. So Jude takes a time out from our text, and he tells us this little story about Michael the archangel and the devil. And this story shows us many things. So verse 9. Yet when Michael the archangel was disputing with the devil in an argument about Moses' body, he did not dare utter a slanderous condemnation against him, but said, The Lord rebuke you. So this interaction between Michael and the devil is used by Jude as a typology, like as an example. This little story shows us that Michael chose for the Lord to render judgment on the devil rather than himself. It's the Lord's prerogative. The dispute happening is a story told in an ancient book called The Assumption of Moses. Uh, It's just another extra-biblical text. Tim will talk more about that next week as well. But what is important to note 
is that Satan is trying to defame and dishonor one of God's most prized and most storied servants. So Michael, who seemingly could establish himself and his own authority, renders all of his authority to God and leaves it in the hands of the Lord, not blaspheming Satan and not slandering glorious ones, no matter how evil those glorious ones may be. So don't miss the antithesis of what's happening here. Okay, Israel, the fallen angels, Sodom and Gomorrah, all overstepped their boundaries in one way or another. And in verse 8, all these present apostates also, it says, in the same way, overstepped their boundaries in multiple ways. But here is Michael, the archangel, the one whom it would appear is able to establish some firm authority against Satan, and even he does not blaspheme Satan or overstep his boundary. What's good to note here is that heretics are arrogant, establishing their own authority, overstepping their boundaries. The righteous keep their proper place and render all things to God's sovereign will and reign. But we move to verses 10 and 11. After our sandwich story here about the archangel Michael, we're back to the apostates, back to where we started. They're blaspheme. They blaspheme anything they do not understand and what they do not and what they do understand by instinct like irrational animals. By these things they are destroyed. So what does Jude mean by this? Well, simply what it sounds like. We all know what animal instincts are and that they do not have rational or ethical faculties that promote understanding, self-governance, or godliness. So what are these instincts that lead to destruction? Well, in addition to what has already been talked about, they are what we'll coin primal corruption. And Jude gives us three very quick examples. They have gone the way of Cain, he says. We all know the story of Cain and Abel and how Cain killed his brother Abel, found in Genesis chapter 4. Abel gave a pleasing sacrifice to the Lord. Cain gave a selfish, unpleasing sacrifice to the Lord. And the text tells us this. Cain was furious and he looked despondent. Then the Lord said to him, Why are you furious? Why do you look despondent? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Sin's desire is to control. Cain let that happen. Cain's jealousy, his anger, his envy, his control filled his heart and he turned out to be a model for sin, really for all generations. These apostates have gone the way of sin, wanting full control and letting sin rule over them. Also, they have plunged into Balaam's heir for profit. In Numbers 22 through 25, we see Balaam being hired for profit to curse God's people. God stops him from doing that. But we do find out in Numbers 31 that it is Balaam who enticed the Israelites to lay with Moabite women and turn their affections towards other gods. Ultimately, in the end, Balaam led people away from God and towards sexual sin, devotion to other gods, and ultimate ruin. Lastly, our third example by Jude, 
that these apostates have perished into Korah's rebellion. So now this one is in Numbers chapter 16. A man named Korah gathered 250 Israelite leaders and they opposed Moses and Moses' authority given by God. They rejected uh, all of those things and said that all people were holy, not just those that obeyed God's commands through Moses. Therefore, Moses set up a test who was to see who is really righteous in God's eyes. And the next day during this exercise, the earth opened up and swallowed Korah and all of his followers. Claiming that all people are God's people is an antinomianism or a universalism. A person who is opposed to God's true authority puts their authority in front of that and says, really there is no holiness because God will save everyone. It's a surefire license for destruction. This primal corruption opposed God and His holy standard, and it not only lowers the bar, but it rejects His authority in all things. All these things will lead to destruction. All these last three things, the past revolters, the present apostates, the primal corruption... And it might feel like we're going through these quick, but it's, it's on purpose. There's a lot here. They lead to destruction, but praise God that that is not the end of Jude's book or our study time together. It's not the end of Jude's final drive because there's more. There is a perfect Savior. In verse 5, Jude says that it was Jesus who saved his people out of Egypt. This may be one of the most clear and precise instances in all of Scripture, I think, that clearly establishes a triune Godhead and the eternal and coexistent oneness of God the Father and Jesus Christ. Jesus leads His people and saves them from all ruin. Jesus hears His people's cries and protects them from danger. Jesus does not let shiftiness or deceit overtake the hearts of those that are eternally His. Not only that, but key to all of this and in a guiding factor in God's care for us is that His full gospel has been fully revealed to us. We need not anyone to come along with new ideas and different theology to tell us anything about who God is and what His gospel is and what that means for us. Look back at verse 3 that Tim taught on last week. The faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. Look at verse 5. You came to know these things once for all. The gospel is the gospel and it is the power of God unto salvation for all those that believe. It does not need anyone's new age theology, new ideas, extra nuances and meanings. Nothing. It is the full gospel and it is fully given And how God has intended His holy scriptures to be given to His holy people. The Word was with God and the Word was God and that Word tabernacled amongst us. Jesus and His good news are the only and final authority about what it is to be in right relationship with God. And deviation from that leads to ultimate destruction. And our perfect Savior who saves and gives His full declaration to us. Not only does those things, but it is His work that you remember. Verse 2, calls, loves, and keeps those He loves. 
So I want to make this clear right now. If you know that you are in right relationship with God because of His simple, ancient, and holy gospel, revealed once for all, then you are already called, loved, and kept. Jesus did not say on the cross that you need to help Him for your salvation, that you need to add to His work for your salvation, that you need to diminish His work for yours and others' salvation. On the cross, He said, it is finished. Those that have found in Him are finished. Finished from sin and now living as a holy saint. Finished from apostasy and heretical teaching, but now knowing God's law, character, and ways. Finished from trying to earn a place before God that they can never earn, but living now under God's blood and Christ's covenant. Finished from diminishing grace, like verse 4, and denying Christ, but now lovingly and willingly living in submission to His perfect and righteous rule. This also needs to be clear, however. If you do not live in Christ in the above aspects, this passage makes explicitly clear to us that judgment and a righteous and complete destruction type of judgment is in your future. Rethink your relationship to this righteous God, the righteous King, King Jesus. Repent of your sins, give up your arrogant ways, and turn to Him and only Him and His true and fully revealed gospel for your salvation. Amen. Okay, so that's my explanation of this text. I, I really do. I know it was really fast. But I do hope that it helped make this passage more clear for you. But what I want to do with the remainder of our time uh, is kind of pinpoint some things for today. A lot of Jude can be summed up by what this passage makes clear. You deny Jesus. You deny God and His ways and create new ways, heretical teachings, living in sin, etc., you set yourself up for ultimate destruction. And the reality, and in the context with which Jude was writing, and what is real today, is that those that will lead you to destruction are sometimes blatant, and sometimes, as verse 4 tells us, are people that come in by stealth. So I want to show you two things. One, show the destruction all around us that is very blatant, and two, the stealth that is often missed in Christian circles. So, number one, blatant destruction all around us. In this passage, if you took notes or just looked at the slides, uh, saw the screen, you saw that there were three things that were highlighted by Jude that consistently throughout this passage lead to destruction. One, revolt against God's plan and God's created order. Two, sexual sin. And three, false teaching, no faith, shifting faith, Korah's antinomianism, those things. Okay, because of all, all sin is opposed to God's created order, and our, our second point will highlight false teaching, I want to say a word about sexual sin. It is by far the most blatant uh, thing in our faces, especially in our modern context and in our society. It's the most recognizable piece of our current culture, the sexual revolution is a freight train that is bent on forcing you to shift your ideals away from God's standard and towards their agenda. 
A few examples, I think, should suffice. If you are not on board with gay marriages, you are on the wrong side of history, we are told. You must give up your religious freedoms as a business owner to cater to this agenda, we are told. Christian colleges and Christian businesses should have to change the way they run their business, we are told. Movies, like uh, the new movie called Cuties on Netflix, sexually exploit 11-year-old girls for entertainment, shock value, and supposed coming-of-age learning experience for all people. It highlights an adolescent girl watching stripper videos under a hijab, another little girl blowing up a condom like a balloon, 11-year-old girls, and I quote from one positive review that the movie gives, or one positive movie review, climaxes with, kid, with the kid, kids booty shaking in hot pants. There's more, but I think I can stop for those in the room. And yet, through the sexual revolution agenda, we are told by Empire Magazine that Cuties is a thematically bold yet nuanced study of displacement and duty that deserves to be seen as an auspicious and astute debut, not the source of scandal. Astute or scandal? You tell me what category that would fall in for your children. To quickly add to this blatant assault on biblical Christianity in regards to sexual sin, in September, Governor Gavin Newsom of California signed into law a bill that allows 24-year-olds to have heterosexual or homosexual sex with anyone as young as the age of 14 and not be placed on the child sex offender list. As stated by the California State Senator, the law ends discrimination by treating LGBTQ young people the exact same way that straight people have been treated since 1944. Today, California took yet another step toward an equitable society. If we want a California for all, then we need a justice system that treats all Californians fairly and equally, regardless of who they are, what they look like, or whom they love. Rationalize the fairness of this bill to me if it is your 14-year-old sin or son or daughter. Other prominent politicians openly live in adulterous relationships and brag about it. Others say that an 8-year-old child that wants to get a sex change, there should be no discrimination towards that child. Must I remind you that your entire job and role as a parent is to constantly make discriminating choices on behalf of your children, that you may raise them in the Lord, is what Scripture tells us. I do not let my family watch movies like Cuties, listen to sexually exploitative music, or adhere to lies that love and law are relative and everyone's truth is their own. I discriminate against all of those things under my roof. Yet others are openly discriminating against you and your God, His holy word, and your religious freedom. From what I said first, the sexual revolution demands that you not only discriminate against, that you not discriminate against them and their ideas, while tongue-in-cheek manner discriminate against all that you and millions of other Christ followers have stood for for millennia. And therein lies the problem. Heretical teaching opposed to God's created order for selfish gain. Just what Jude has been talking about in our text. Contend for the faith that was delivered for the saints once for all. The second and last thing about these stealthy apostates, 
They embody all the other sinful agendas that we looked at this morning. They are arrogant. They overstep their boundaries. They add to the gospel. They do not keep their proper place. They slander glorious ones. They have envy, jealousy. They preach false teaching. They diminish sin, holiness, and God's grace and more. So I want to show you what this looks like because it is rampant in Christian circles. Bill Johnson, a renowned teacher at Bethel Church, in his book titled, When Heaven Invades Earth, A Practical Guide to a Life of Miracles, Johnson states on page 87 to 88 that Jesus laid his divinity aside as he sought to fulfill the assignment given to him by the Father. This is not, however, what the Bible teaches and is known as the kenotic theory and has been opposed by Orthodox Christianity always. As is mentioned in one article regarding this heretical teaching, the self-emptying in Philippians 2 is not to be seen as a divestment of deity. On the contrary, it is an expression of Jesus' deity. Jesus is able to do it because he is God. The act of incarnation is an elegant expression of what God can do that is otherwise to us incomprehensible. In the being and existence of God, he took as well the being and existence of the creature, fully God, fully man, never giving up his deity, never being less than human in his life. As N.T. Wright has written, the pre-existent son regarded equality with God not as excusing him from the task of redemptive suffering and death, but actually as uniquely qualifying him for that vocation. A couple of quick things on this anti-Christological teaching with Johnson's rendering of Hebrews 1.3, which is really one of Scripture's most perfect expression of Jesus' nature a very incarnational, high Christological statement as a miracle working. They, they describe it, he describes it as a miracle working, achievable imitation for us rather than an incarnate Lord and God who laid down his life for his sheep and a statement about him. This is not orthodox Christian teaching. This doesn't even mention Bethel's teachings on Holy Spirit laughter, Gold dust, seeing giant angels above their church that command them to well wakey-wakey to a sleepy generation. This is, I'm quoting. And a couple months ago, having a prophetess on their stage with a wizard staff to get church leaders and crowd to shout as Lord of the Rings movie, Thou Shall Not Pass, to demons of racism. It seems too crazy to be true. What would Peter or Paul or Augustine or Luther think of people on stage with wizard staffs quoting Hollywood movies in the name of Christ? It seems too crazy to be true, but it is not. You can look it up for yourself. Yet so many love their teachings, love their music and their culture. They come in by stealth, Jude says. Joe Olstein, let me just read a tweet from his that gets retweets by Christians all over the world. He says this, I quote, When you can give God praise, even when life doesn't make sense, then he will release you into a new level of your destiny. What? If I praise God enough, I can be confident that my self-conjured destiny of success and fortune will assuredly await me? 
Or in his book, The Power of I Am, where he says, I can't believe I even heard this and that I'm going to say this, but so many Christians buy into it, and he has the biggest church in America. It reads, I quote, Romans 4 says to call the things that are not as though they, are, they were. That simply means that you shouldn't talk about uh, the way you are. Talk about the way you want to be, though. If you're struggling in your finances, don't go around saying, oh man, business is slow. The economy is so down. It's never going to work out. That's calling the things that are as if they will always be that way. That's just describing the situation. By faith, you have to say, I am blessed. I am successful and I am surrounded by God's favor. What? I have a quote. If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me will save it. What does Osteen say in response to that? I quote, Do good for your own self. Do it because God wants you to be happy. When you come to church, when you worship Him, you're not doing it for God, really. You're doing it for yourself because that's what makes God happy. Amen? No. Not, not amen. I could go on and on and on in this realm. Joyce Meyer, Creflo Dollar, Benny Hinn, and so many others. And may I remind, not all of these stealthy agents are high-profile names with large churches. Some sneak in and sit by you and challenge your orthodox doctrines to try to change the ways that you think with tickling ears. One more that is clearly evident, because I know I'm going to go way over time. In our local context, Mormonism. Mormons will automatically tell you that they are Christian, but they are apostates, following and proliferating their false gospel and false Jesus. About God, Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, and I quote, he says, we have imagined and supposed that God was God from all eternity. I refute that idea and take away the veil so that you may see. He says this in his sermon called King Follett Discourse. Look it up. What does, it's one of his most famous sermons. What does God say? Isaiah 40, 43, verse 10. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there ever be after me. Someone has to be wrong. Joseph Smith or God? Smith also said, you have got to learn how to be gods yourselves, the same way all gods have done before you. But Scripture tells us, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, Shema Yisrael, Yahweh Elohina, Yahweh Ahad. Listen, O Israel, our God, our Lord is one. Our God, He is eternal. Daniel 7.14 says that His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. No opposing kingdom needs to be set up against His and all that are will fail. Worship team, you guys can come up. Isaiah 40 verse 8 says, The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. You need not, you need not any new revelations from soothsayers or supposed prophets, our God's word and his full gospel have been delivered to the saints once for all, as Jude has said. You will not become a God someday, nor would you ever want to become God someday, because our God is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. 
He is found in Jesus Christ, the one who saved his people out of Egypt, who destroys those that are opposed to him, who came incarnate into this world and declared his kingdom was at hand. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. He is the one that hung on the cross and atoned for the sins of all those that place their faith in him. He is the one dressed in a robe with a golden sash wrapped around his chest, with hair on his head as white as snow, with eyes like a fiery flame, with feet like bronze and a voice of cascading waters and a double-edged sword coming from his mouth and a face as bright as the sun. You think he needs an apostate's new revelation? A new word? Humanity's sympathy or a watered-down version of his message? I think not. And this God of all creation, of all eternity, and who comes on the clouds and rules in heaven, he has given you this book, this gospel, delivered once for all. And you can know his truth, and for it, you can contend and share it with the dying and broken world that more would be able to learn his truth and who this God is. He is worthy. He is worth it. Amen? Amen. Let's corporately stand together and proclaim that truth and praise.